and welcome to the Riff Raff podcast hosted by Amy Baker. The Riff Raff is a writer's community that champions the work of debut authors and provides guidance, support and services for those dreaming of one day being published themselves. On episode 80 of the Riff Raff podcast, I'm chatting to Alex Allison, author of The Art of the Body, a novel about the relationship between a young artist and his carer. It's about dignity and intimacy, tenderness and brutality, and is unafraid to explore uncommon bodies in unusual ways. Alex studied art history at the University of York and completed an MA in creative writing from Manchester Centre for New Writing. His writing has been published in Popshot Magazine, Artifice, Pank, and many others. Today we discuss his brilliant novel and cover how to approach writing about disability, how theme informs plot and characters inform theme, and how he used smart targets to write his book around a busy day job. Maintaining one person's dignity comes nearly always at the expense of someone else's. I have learned this for you. My morning ritual begins in the bathroom. At the sink, I wet my hands in lather, dancing my fingers through their trained routine. Tips to palm, knuckles to palm, lock, lace, relace, clasp, pray, covet, beg and rinse. I fill a plastic tray with warm water and shower gel, testing the heat against the inside of my wrist. From a white cardboard box, I peel out two purple gloves and work the plastic down over my hands. Latex pinches between my fingers, tight against my slightly damp skin. I look medical, feel medical. I flex my fingers and take a deep, steadying breath. (sighs) Sean's flat is heavy with the polite chemical smell of air freshener. Every surface and fixture is perfect white. All human materials polished to a sheen that's almost wet. I set down the tray of water on his bedside table and ease open the blinds. Sean is awake, but yet to respond to my presence. He is in bed, just as I left him, laid fetal and still, rolled into the wall, his arms over the covers and T-rexed into his chest. It is the posture of poverty. His breaths are shallow, testing only the tops of his lungs. You wouldn't guess that I'm two years older than him. Sean is 22, but there's a greyness to his skin. Now comes the long groan, the sneer, and an awkward attempt to shield his eyes. Ugh. Morning, he says. Radio? Yes, please. For our first few months together, we talked through this routine. I'd warn Sean what was coming, when my hands would hold him next. Now the radio spares us the pleasantries that accompany the maintenance of a person. After eight months with his body, I'm lucky to get a lower, a softer, a finished... I still always get a thank you. Did you sleep well? I always sleep well. I sleep well until you come in and ruin it. It is nice out. Do not tell me that, please. I want to listen to the weather report. Sean's top has ridden up his back during the night, the material evidence of a struggle. I ease the rest over his head and examine the rawness. Does that hurt at all? I say, pressing. No. And here? A little. Sean is Irish, raised in Yorkshire, but cerebral palsy has its own accent. Sean's voice belongs more to his limbs than his mind. It comes from a curled, chafed place. But I'm fluent in Sean. I know his pain from his relief, his biscuits from his business. I move to the end of the bed and double-check that the wheels are clamped before we begin. Down here, more evidence of a struggle. His feet protrude from the bottom of the covers. Some of his toes are crossed, as though for luck or lying. 
the soles of Sean's feet are smooth, untested by the weight and pressure of a working body. His knees point at a 45-degree angle through the sheets into the wall. Sean would be tall if he could stand. Hi, Alex. Thank you so much for taking the time to join me on the Riffraff podcast. I'm delighted to be speaking with you. Thank you for having me. I absolutely loved your debut novel. I know I waxed lyrical to you about it, the Riffraff. Um, So your debut novel, The Art of the Body. Can we kick things off with you telling us a little about the book? Of course. Um, So The Art of the Body is the story of Janet and Sean and the nature of their relationship. Janet is Sean's carer um, and Sean is an art student at Central St Martin's College in London uh, who lives and works with cerebral palsy. And the the nature of the relationship between them is complicated by the fact that Janet resents the life that she's enabling Sean to live and in many ways aspires to it herself. Uh, And the core plot of the book focuses on Sean's journey through his first year of college, where he's producing photographs as the main um, medium of his art, where his body is being bound up in certain ways that are mostly evocative of images of BDSM and torture and uh, thematically explores uh, dignity and uh, the limits of our body and the limits of compassion as well as uh, how we confront the complicated nature of what it means to be intimate with someone. Yeah, wonderful summation. Thank you. Um, I always think it's really interesting to start by understanding more about how you came to write this book. So if you could tell us a little bit about your journey to becoming a published author before we get into more details about the book. (laughs) So I think that... It's worth foregrounding my journey with the inspiration for the novel and kind of what what I drew upon to be able to confidently write this subject matter. I had some exposure to care work through a Catholic charity that I was part of through school and in my early 20s, where we took uh, disabled people on holiday, um, uh, often on a kind of pilgrimage to um, Lourdes or other religious locations where um, it was pitched as like a good spiritual journey but it was mostly like a nice break for the the disabled people who were mostly a similar age to us um but you came to realize when you were handing them back over at the end of the trip that it was a break for their carers as well um so uh, it it was a very humbling thing to experience as a cynical teenager who was having a crisis of faith himself um and uh, I'm not a religious person in any serious aspect any longer, but it uh, helped me come to terms with how people can have a meaningful engagement with faith without necessarily having it define their lives entirely. So the, the kind of journey as an author that I had started from uh, being uh, relatively unbothered by reading through my early teens and only really rediscovering books Um, around the time that I was going to sixth form when I started getting uh, something that used to exist in the UK called educational maintenance allowance, where um, by staying on for sixth form, I was paid £30 a week, um, which was the first money I ever had in my pocket. Um, uh, And I I spent it all on books, basically. I was one of those very pretentious teenagers who tried to (laughs) read as much philosophy as possible and was exposing themselves to all the classics of literature and very quickly developed um, high 
highfalutin aspirations for the writerly life that I was going to live, uh, whether that be in academic circles or um, something very pretentious. Um, and I, I started doing poetry and short stories and submitting to online journals and forcing my way into various communities by connecting on Facebook to authors who I was reading and admiring, um, including a handful of people who were in the UK and of a similar age to me. Um, and that fed through to, to university where during my undergraduate degree, um, I uh, was championed by a small press out in the US and they published a little bit of my work. Um, and at the time I was playing poker, kind of uh, at a very relatively high level, able to earn a decent living as a student playing poker and enough money to um, fund a place on a master's degree at the University of Manchester doing creative writing, um, studying under Jeanette Winterson and Jeff Ryman and MJ Highland. And that's when I started writing the manuscript that became The Art of the Body under their tutelage. Uh, the novel after I graduated, I, I set aside for a little bit because I needed to enter work. Um, and I worked as a recruitment consultant for like uh, four or five years while the, the idea gestated in my head. And I never really let it go, but I kind of abandoned all of the ambitions that I had when I was working these 10, 12 hour days as a recruiter, trying to um, earn a decent living and find out what I felt about uh, a, a slightly more normal career whilst never abandoning the kind of love for reading. Um, so, yeah, that, that's the kind of journey to me taking it a bit more seriously and returning to the book to write it in earnest again. Yeah. What a varied career and you know professional <laughs> poker recruitment love it and now you work at the British Library I understand I do yeah I'm working there three days a week at the moment running a mentoring scheme intended for social enterprises so that's really cool I only have come to doing that having stepped away from recruitment uh, to, to work on book two this uh, the art of the body was written entirely while I was working full-time wow incredible Incredible that you could, while you were doing the recruitment job? Yes, yeah, while, while I was doing it. So um, apologies if I'm repeating things that I've mentioned to you previously, but in, I think it was 2017, I, I decided that I was going to take it more seriously. And for a New Year's resolution, I set up these smart targets. Um, yes, smart I love this bit. Yes, I remember yeah. this. Yeah. <laughs> Smart targets have changed my life in a load of ways, but they've made me a much more productive and focused writer. Uh, it's an acronym that stands for specific, uh, measurable, achievable, uh, realistic and time oriented. So in 2017, I set up this Excel spreadsheet where it was like, I'm going to write 52,000 words of my book this year, um, writing at a pace of a thousand words a week. And the nice thing about having the macro goal is if that you fall a week behind schedule, it's not a very difficult thing to make it up as long as you're relatively disciplined and you can view things over those longer time frames. But I was, I, I'd initially set it up with the ambition of quitting smoking. It was like, right, I'm going to smoke under 150 cigarettes this year. And that means that I can kind of smoke 20 on a night out and not feel too guilty about it because I can just offset that by holding off and having um, none for like a period of two or three weeks at a time. But in in the end, the, the the momentum took me very quickly. And once I was writing at a far more consistent pace, uh, it became far more than a thousand words a week. And I ended up having the whole first draft of the, the novel done by about mid-March of that year and Amazing. submitted to, um, I think, four agents, uh, 
including one who had been in contact with me previously from when I was on the Masters. I think I got three replies within about 48 hours, which is like the best feeling for a writer to have yourself validated in that little way with something that's lived in your head for a very long time. So, yeah. um, And then I had conversations with the three agents and uh, ended up going with the one who I spoke to first, who uh, really shared an understanding of what my ambitions were for the book and the story that I was trying to tell. Amazing. What a journey. What a journey. I love it. And the, the smart targets thing speaks to a part of my brain, like the spreadsheet. That's it. Yeah, I love the idea yeah. of that. I have to give it a bash. Because, you know, a thousand words a week is a very doable target, isn't it? You know, like it's, you know, a lot, oh my people, God. A lot yeah. of people try and do a thousand words a day, you know. So to be doing it like that. And there's something about having a, a set goal, being able to tick it off when you've done it. That is, And then when you start to feel that you're making progress, like you say, you start to gain momentum and then you're then you're away because because word counts are nonsense I mean it's such an arbitrary figure to put down on something it's not like my scenes are a thousand words long it's not like the there's a central idea that I can express um in uh 500 words that I can't in 2000 it's it's just a nice well-rounded barometer for you to feel like you've made meaningful progress and you can see that little tracker in your word document go up yeah well i admire your commitment to your targets it's um yeah something i aspire to so anyway let's crack on with talking about the novel because it's incredible so thank you let's start by talking about you know obviously it's called the art of the body and um as you mentioned it's very much about the exploration of the limits of the body you know, Janet has a pretty unique perspective on bodies. She grew up in a funeral parlour, funeral home, and mm-hmm. um, she's also dating a body-obsessed ex-Olympian. And then her day job is obviously working with Sean and taking him through physical exercise that exhausts her own body in the process. So it's and then of course you have the, the photographs that they're taking, which she's putting Sean into these positions, like you say, and um, and that's physically grueling on her, physically grueling on him. You know, it's very much about the body. And obviously it's, it's about the exploration of, the, of the, the limits of the mind as well. And um, I just wondered if you could talk a little bit about your approach to this part of the book. Was it something that you set out to explore at the beginning? And did you therefore use it to shape your plot? Yeah, absolutely. The, the the themes inform the plot, but as I think a lot of writers will tell you, it, it's the characters who lead the themes. So there, there's that kind of flow to it, isn't there, where you've got the, the central idea for what you want your characters to be, and then everything comes out of you knowing those people and following them through their journeys and really inhabiting that emotional space. So the the first decisions that are important to the way that the story is told is the fact that I'm writing as a woman, first person, present tense. Um, And that was the vehicle that uh, made the most sense when I was uh, figuring out the best approach to tell the story that I wanted to, because firstly, it would be disingenuous to tell a story about care work through the voice of a man, given that a disproportionate uh, number of care workers are working class women. And secondly, the, the the kind of immediacy and the the intimacy that I felt I needed to communicate about the, working with somebody else's body is best conveyed 
not in reflection, but through lived uh, present tense experience. You, all the smells and the feeling and the the nausea that experience somebody having their ass wiped on a daily basis, um, or uh, you changing somebody's catheter, or you um, helping them feed themselves. That in order for me to kind of do justice to it, I felt like I needed to um, use that vehicle. So for the what what you asked there about uh, how the, the the nature of writing the body um, in, informs the everything that comes with the book, the the starting point was trying to do justice to like the the, the vulnerability involved with an adult person allowing uh, somebody who is essentially a stranger under paid employment to have compassion and care for them like the working title of the book and what I submitted under was caring yes. and I I was it's this it's this curious schism of a word to to care about somebody and then care for them uh, a very separate constructs in the same way that the word dignity is like the etymology of the word dignity is associated inherently with class we've got the dignitaries of the past and everything to do with bodily dignity is throughout the majority of Western history tied into people's privilege. It's a very recent phenomenon that anybody could be privileged enough to pay a stranger to um, take care of them or care about them. So early in the novel, Janet reflects on the fact that she could be anyone, that it's just happenstance that's led her to be in this super intimate position with Sean and know everything about him, know all of his secrets. Nothing about him is hidden to her. She knows his entire biography. And I use this kind of device where she imagines herself as a bit of a biographer for him, where if he ever goes on to become a famous artist, uh, she's going to be the one writing the biography that's like a tell-all about him further down the line. And that allows her to do a bit of exposition about both her own past and um, uh, his history and his relationship with his own family. But yeah, I've become sidetracked a little bit, but hopefully um, <laughs> that answers the question. You've kind of answered two of my questions there, actually. So it's, it's oh, wonderful. Okay. I think the use of that device is um, is something that we should talk about because, you know, like exposition is something that's so difficult you know it's so essential to a novel but it's also so important to kind of sneak it in under the guise of something that fits in with the style of the novel and the, you know without just basically relaying facts was that something that you came to naturally or was that something that you were like right I need to find a device here where I can do that did that just kind of come in within the writing process yeah uh I am a big fan of stealing what works for other people <laughs> I, 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 I like uh, one of the great skills that you learn from uh, doing the conventional master's degree route is how to be a better reader of um, how uh, a novel works and is put together. And you lose all inhibitions about um, stealing and borrowing the parts that work well in other people's stories. So what I did was go through my entire bookcase and figure out which of the stories were being written first person, present tense, and then figured out and decoded all of the ways that they were fitting exposition into their stories. And you're, you're completely right. It's, it's an essential part of the storytelling process. But uh, if you're going to do it well, it needs to be intermingled with a um, unreliable internal monologue. It needs to be intermingled with contradictory desires. It needs to be intermingled with 
a dialogue that doesn't seem cumbersome or laborious and it needs to be uh, intermingled with well-moderated use of flashbacks. I don't like first-person present tense novels that revert back to just um, thinking about flashbacks and things. So my, my novel follows a very linear arc. It begins and then it ends and it uh, sets out its estate relatively early on about what kind of space of time is going to be elapsed. There's always something that I write into the book that's um, coming up next. That, that's like one of the big devices that I learned is the best way to get exposition in there. You always just have to have something on the horizon as the next event coming up that is going to move the book forwards. And that's much easier to do when you've got a single narrator and much easier to do when you've got um, a defined uh, structure like an academic year informing um, the, the way that your novel is set up. So uh, it, it, it's a bit of a cheat sheet way of doing it but um there's no shame in that I don't think for any writer well especially because otherwise where where do you draw a line you know if you've got these interesting characters living interesting lives and having interesting dynamics if you don't put it within the time frame it's how how would you know when to stop (laughs) well absolutely yeah I don't think that you're right in that sometimes you do need to to write through it and it's just a matter of sitting down and putting time at the keyboard to figure out what's going to work for you and trying two or three different things and then electing which is going to be the most either efficient or uh, well suited to the, what, what you're trying to achieve. But um, as other people have mentioned on the podcast, I think knowing what you want to achieve out of each scene informs the, the direction that you take it in. And I remember even before the master's degree coming across this uh, technique that Kurt Vonnegut used when he was mapping the the entire shape of a story, but also the shape of a scene where he does these um, line graphs for the emotional pitch that he, he wants to kind of follow through and how like a Cinderella story is this entire upward trajectory, uh, whereas a lot of crime dramas follow a more like bell curve of moving to a peak and then descending back down from it. And I like to draft one of those line graphs for each scene that I was inside of. So how do you build to a dramatic high point and then move back down from it? So the the whole novel, when it's stitched together and you've got all of those scenes compiled, they undulate really nicely. So you're never um, building towards a fever pitch that becomes unsustainable for too long. But it's a relatively short book anyway. It's not like it's only like 270 pages odd. So it's it's not um it's not un, ungainly. Yeah, yeah, and it's and it's a I I, I found that I read it very quickly because I was just because there is that sense of dread in it for sure. I thought you know there's, de- there's definitely that sense of dread in it. Before we get on to the sense of dread, you know, it sounds like you've taken a very pragmatic approach to writing this book. You know, as well as having your smart trackers you've got these these line graphs for the emotional emotional pitch and then kind of you've written it in a, in a linear fashion did you did you plot it all out did you know your scenes that were happening you did you plan it quite thoroughly so the story is told linearly i didn't write it linearly at all no um what i did was uh plotted it out to the extent that I knew a beginning, middle, and I thought I knew the end, might get onto that in a bit, and knew the kind of dramatic peaks that I was working towards, and then sketched out um, from my research and my lived experience of care work, all of the parts that needed to to be present in order to tell that efficiently. But in terms of the, the approach that I'm taking, it all seeming very structured, I promise you, it doesn't feel like that while you're doing it. No, it doesn't. It doesn't. <laughs> um, 
it, it's the way that my mind works. And that's informed partly by being in that recruitment culture where it's so target driven, but also um, the, the mathematical culture of poker and uh, that really needing to inform a lot of your decision making process and just trying to do things efficiently. But also working full time, you need to be so disciplined when you're allocating an hour and a half or two hours of your evening every night to work on something. You need a goal of what you want to get out of it if you're going to um, feel like you're um uh, justifying saying no to going out to drinks with your mates if you go home and then you faff about for a bit or don't actually end up putting something together that feels like a worthwhile use of your time you, you get depressed very quickly and feel guilty about it I hear that very clearly <laughs> you, need, you need to make a lot of you need to make you're making progress don't you and if, and if you've worked out the way that your mind works to, to achieve what you want to achieve then all power to you mate I'm, I'm happy for you <laughs> Um, so, so with as you mentioned, you mentioned Janet. She's a woman because a lot of women do care work. Can you talk a little bit about your sort of? You've probably touched on this a little bit already, but your sort of exploration into Janet herself. You spoke earlier about interspersing that exposition with the unreliable narration and the kind of like the the her ideas her ideas about life and all those kind of things that that form her character. And um, yeah. can, can you talk a little bit about your approach to her and also offer any advice for writers who are writing protagonists of a different gender? I think one of the shittiest and most generic bits of advice that a lot of um, uh, aspiring writers get given is your character has to have a clearly defined want. They have to want something um, and be moving towards it. And that, whilst that is true, it uh, belays the, the truth that... Um, for the vast majority of people, our wants are super contradictory and inconsistent and uh, are changing all the time. And my favourite characters in fiction have consistently been what uh, abide by the trope of the unlikable female character. And I, I'm not a big fan of the term because it sounds like the, the kind of term that male readers apply to women whose ideas they don't agree with. I, but when I reflect on the, the kind of stories that stick with me most, and even ones that have been super well-received in popular culture, all the way through from Anna Karenina through to Leela in uh, Elena Ferrante's Neapolitan Chronicles, through to recent examples in the writing of the likes of Emir McBride and Halle Butler, the, having uh, a female character who is at war with herself and self-sabotaging and really kind of resentful and bitter, but also is funny and compassionate and caring and still wants to do a good job. How do you resolve those things? Mm. And the, the, the answer is that you don't. You, you don't really resolve them. You allow that drama to play itself out on the page. One, one of the beautiful things about writing a character as layered and nuanced as Janet is that she can uh, both resent Sean and be really defensive about him and uh, want to love him. And she's obsessed by him and uh, she's he's everything that she wants to be. And the fact that through the art that they're making together, it still only has his name on it is, is the big kind of... Uh, driver for her to feel the resent but at the same time she's she's so proud of him and everything that he is achieving and getting good attention for and aware of the the difficulties that he's been through to accomplish that so I I, I like those types of characters and I don't think there's a lack of them in literature there's more of a lack of characters like Sean who I hope is a well-rounded disabled character who doesn't abide by one of those uh, horrible tropes in modern literary fiction where disability is 
often configured in some kind of binary where they're either an object of pity or an object of inspiration. He, he's he's neither and both of those things. And Janet is a champion for him when other people try and put him in either of those boxes because she allows him to be a well-rounded, um, unique person. Yeah, she, like it's, it's what you've set out to achieve. I think you've done masterfully. I'm, I feel yeah, super proud of you. Um, so let's talk about Sean. Um, so he's like, like you say, you know, he is a he is a well-rounded character. You get a lot more of his personality than I feel like I'd ever read in a novel. Um, and you know, a lot of people's experience of disability is as an observer of it rather than having direct understanding or even knowing people, myself included. And then, um, yeah, in your novel, we really get a glimpse into into Sean and who he is and his capabilities and his personality and his like desires. And it's you know, it's it's refreshing. Can you talk a little bit about how you approached writing Sean and what, if anything, you hope the reader would take away from the novel about disability? One of the things that I am really an advocate of uh, aspiring writers to consider when including disabled characters in their stories is thinking about the fact that disability doesn't abide by the other characteristics of identity and that it's not like gender or race or um, sexuality because it doesn't, it's not fixed. Anyone can be disabled at any point in their lives through a freak accident or an illness or something. And disability affects you differently on different days. Like Sean has good days and bad days with his his body through the course of the novel. And Janet is present through all of that. And so much of disability, like cerebral palsy, is experienced as uh, just blunt force you you need to just work your way through it by lifting and moving and um, being uncomfortable and making yourself do a load of crap that you don't necessarily want to or you're not in the mood to for the good of your long-term health so the the other thing that you really need to to think about when writing disability is that your body informs all of you so much of your identity comes from how you're perceived by others and how you respond to their perceptions. And and in that respect, you you need to have something other than your body as a fixed point of identity. So that's why Sean viewing himself primarily as a Catholic and an artist are more significant to his sense of personhood than anything to do with his body without him necessarily dismissing it or overlooking it. He embraces it and tries to make it part of his art. And he has these people throughout the the narrative trying to tell him um, what it means and the message that he's trying to convey without ever really giving him an opportunity to to voice what he means, which is something that Janet is increasingly aware of and resentful of. So as I mentioned earlier, it's it is a it's it's an unsettling read, you know. There's this kind of itchy sense of dread throughout. I found anyway, and and, and, and and mostly because you know the reader is privy to every thought Janet has, good or bad, about her job, about Sean, about her. Sometimes she sort of fantasizes about torture him, torturing him. You know, she has fantasies like not fantasies, but she thinks about his mum a lot, and you know, it compels the reader to address uncomfortable truths about ourselves, about humanity. Um, particularly in regards to, as you mentioned earlier, power dynamics, dependency, like what happens when the balance of that 
switches in certain in certain elements. You know, obviously, like Sean's so dependent on Janet, but to a certain extent, Janet is very dependent on Sean for the wages. You know, there's there's, there's a completely there's, there's, yeah. there's, a, there's a switch, and um, and you know, and also, what happens to your own life when it's put into the service of another, and um, or is it's put to the service of another? And um, I wonder if you could explain the process of setting both kind of setting up these questions and answering them within the novel. So with with Janet's character, when I spoke about her having self-sabotaging instincts, it stems from the fact that she's got into a mental state where she perceives herself to be a bad and worthless person. And when you perceive yourself to be a bad and worthless person, it becomes a lot easier to imagine yourself as capable of evil things, even if you aren't acting on them. One of her big frustrations in her life is she has these perceptions of herself as bad and useless when everyone around her is telling her, oh, you do such good work and it's so nice that you um, are making so many sacrifices for the sake of this person. So there's that unresolvable element to her character that's kind of torturing her where she wants to live up to um, the, the bad tendencies she has and doesn't want Sean to be an outlet for salvation or become too dependent on him. Mm-hmm. I think she, she has... Um, entered into care work without having the intention of this being a vocation for her. It's not a calling that she wants to be tied down to long term. This was meant to be a quick fix for her that kind of was a route for her to be able to move to London and then she was going to move on from it eventually. So when your whole identity starts to be defined by your work because it's so physically exhausting and it's your only source of income, and it's all you can speak about with your friends because you've become a bit obsessed with this guy that you're caring for. She she feels vulnerable and weak because of it. And that was one of the things that we needed to, to kind of improve on in the editing process. Originally, I did have her thinking more often through the original drafts of the book in that kind of masturbatory way that anybody can enter into where uh, they go down a thought spiral. And we edited a bit out of that. And the the novel originally actually ended after, I think it's chapter five, uh, without what eventually became the epilogue. And my agent's advice to me, which was absolutely dead on, was that in order to A, make this commercially viable in terms of being able to sell to a publisher, but also a more well-rounded read, it needed something to bring the story to a close more holistically and also more satisfyingly and she was absolutely dead on and I went away for like another two months to to write the epilogue and it became a much stronger book because of it Mm. hopefully yeah so that's interesting because you you said earlier about the um how the ending you thought you had your ending and then yeah so is that what is that what you mean when you said that yeah that's exactly it yeah um I wanted to end the book in like really quite a dark place (laughs) um where where Janet had um completely been the the perpetrator of her own destruction and left in uh the most isolated state that she is in at any point in, in the narrative but the, the epilogue and having the, the ability to set it at a distance from the, the ending of the primary narrative allows space for the characters to experience the growth that they've been building to through the book mm. um, because it's very much a story where the characters grow um, symbiotically through each other. I think 
I had a question at the event that we did together about how I conceived of the characters and I've, I've always conceived of them in tandem to each other. It's very hard for me to, to talk about one of them without speaking about the other because the, the story of the book is this central relationship. Who came first, Janet or Sean? Yeah, there, there really wasn't one. Um, when you set out to tell a story about care work, it is a story about the person being cared for and the person delivering the care, right? There, there's been a, a wave of some really interesting stories about care over the last few years. There's like Say, Say, Say by Lee Savage and uh, Shelf Life by Livia Francini. Um, and I don't think that any of the, the books have approached it in quite the, the same way that, that I have. And there, there are so many ways to tell this story and they're all really interesting and it explores so many parts of human psychology and human nature that um, align just below the surface. But also something that everyone in our generation is going to have to confront. 70% of the population of the UK will be a carer at some point in our lives. Wow, is that the, that's the statistic, is it? Seven zero now, yeah. Disproportionately weighted towards women, but um, that that number's just going to go up. My goodness. So, what do you? What advice do you have for people? You know, like cause, because you like, I love the idea that you're showing your characters growth over this sustained period of time. And you're right, the epilogue a hundred percent does allow you to see how that growth that you've been witnessing that difficult period of time how that pays off. Like it's 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 nice when. To think of it like that. Um, what what advice do you have for people who are intending to make the reader question things? <laughs> I know that's kind of quite a vague question, but you know, like the majority of people write a book because they want to put a, put forward a point of view about something to do with life or you know the human condition. Um, so yeah, what kind of what what advice do you have for people intending to to do so? I feel like. Again, one, one of the good things about the, the master's degree is that it um, buffed out a load of the instincts that I have to be too pretentious and too philosophical. Um, a lot of the time when you're writing to make a point, you end up trying to be too clever. And uh, writing to make other people think that you're clever is a way to uh, turn a really interesting story into something exhausting and tedious. And there's plenty of very average to bad fiction out there that does that. A lot of the time, that's the kind of tendency that a mid-career author seems to get into, where they start out with some big, grand political point and try and make a narrative work to that. I think that the opposite has to happen. The the, the points that you're making come out of the, the story that you're trying to tell, rather than vice versa. When I was writing the, the story about care work, I didn't have at the front of my time, it was a, a story about the limits of compassion and dignity. That's what uh, comes through finding a way to, to write that story. I didn't set out to write a, a story about how visual art is a medium for self-expression, that language isn't always. That comes through the, the fact that you're writing a character who has aspirations to use his body in ways that uh, society still perceives to be taboos. I didn't have the aspiration to write about the, the wider perception of Christianity and how the disabled community aspires to, uh, doesn't always aspire to wanting to be healed, which is a narrative that we project on them. That's, again, something that comes out of knowing your characters and writing that plot. So anytime that you think that you're trying to say something really clever, step back from it a little bit, put it in the hands of another reader, say, am I being an arsehole here? <laughs> am I, am I uh, uh, losing track of what I'm, I'm trying to say? Don't go more than five pages without 
uh, allowing the reader to smile. <laughs> um, uh, don't allow things to be consistently dark and dismal and very poignant. You need to have a bit of lightness injected into there and uh, set your station out from the start of the book. Don't try and set an opening that is going to be far more lighthearted than the points that you want to go on to make. Try and achieve a consistent tone that can evolve over time. Um, rather than dragging a reader into a book that they're going to become frustrated and unsatisfied by because it moves on to something more grand than uh, its beginnings belie. Yeah, great advice. Thank you. Um, so pretty much I was, I was reading through some reviews and just some, some articles about, you know, great reviews, by the way, well done. Um, but every, pretty much everything I read about the art of the body refers to it as kind of bold and unflinching. And I, I mean, I like that. Yeah. <laughs> they're, um, they're good words for a book to be described as, especially a debut novel, you know, great to be considered bold. Um, what do you think it is about the novel that makes it so? And was that something that you were deliberately setting out to make it? Did you want to write something that made have that impact? I, I do perceive those things to, to be compliments, and it's very nice when people speak positively about any of the work that you do. It's a really weird one to, to hear about bold writing. Maybe it's that I don't know how to write any other way. I'm not very good at... Um, it, it's a difficult one to, to think about, kind of the, the boldness of writing. I think what a lot of people are used to with the kind of uh, writing about the body is that you write, like, say, a sex scene, and it, it cuts away. Um, because sex scenes are notoriously difficult for uh, debut authors, let alone mid-career authors and uh, very experienced writers to write well. So they do this cheat where they they have a load of sexual tension that um, uh, leads to one touch and then a cutaway where you see them in bed afterwards. And uh, the the boldness and the, the directness of it comes that I don't really skimp the details of what it means to experience intimacy and the kind of darker thoughts that exist in our heads at the same time as us taking pleasure in something or where our mind goes when we are um, having a normal work day. Again, there, there aren't that many novels that focus so entirely on labour and work. And the art of the body is very much a story of working class labour in, in the truest sense. When, when you think of the, the vast majority of literary fiction, it happens in the free time of characters or it happens in their internal lives while they're in these uh, non-liminal states or they're kind of between places or on a journey somewhere whereas the the mundanity of um, care work in particular means that you are living the same day over and over again with such a defined set routine where there's very little variation to the um, labour that goes into caring for a body so maybe it comes out of that but I, I don't perceive those comments to be a negative whatsoever, and I'm very grateful for them. It, oh, it, it hasn't received like um, a load of attention from the media, and the, it, it's a very hard book to market because there's not a huge appetite for um, stories about disabled people, and uh, it, it doesn't quite fit into any categories of chiclet, and it doesn't fit into any character uh, characteristics of a more psychological thriller because... It's a story of the, the stories that we tell ourselves to make it through the day. Mm. Yeah, but it's, it's an important book, probably because of that, because it's, it's a situation that many people are in. And, and I think the one thing when you were talking about how, because, because you're writing about it 
about her experiences over the course of the day and of her work as a carer as she's doing it. The language you use, you know, there's no time for musing or for kind of poetic observations <laughs> about what you're doing, what she's doing. It is just matter of fact. And like that's, I think that's quite interesting, you know, like it's not, it's not happening to someone while they're kind of like having a daydream. You know, it's very much the the facts of what she's doing at that point. And that's, um, yeah, it's a beautiful point you made there. I think everyone should read this book. I think like, I, I thoroughly enjoyed it. And, and, um, and, and as the best books do, it gave me a deeper understanding, a deeper sympathy, a deeper kind of, yeah, more underst- understanding of the, you know, how people think. And yeah, and that's, that's what books should do, I think. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah, I have um, a social group of people who primarily aren't readers, like uh, whether that be my friends who I still play poker with or my friends who, who play football with, and those of them who are kind enough to, to buy and read it and support it, um, all did report back that they found it readable, um, which was really <laughs> gratifying to hear. Like to, to a general audience, this is this is not a hard or particularly dense book. It's relatively pacey, and um, I think that it, it's as layered as you choose, choose to make it. Um, that there's enough space for the reader to insert themselves hopefully and to to connect with um janet's voice yeah absolutely i really i agree with that completely so i read a quote from your publisher charmaine lovegrove at dialogue books where she mentioned what drew you to drew her to your novel which was that it featured a character empowered by his disability and that it was an exploration of how creativity can embolden. And I wondered if you could elaborate a little bit on on that kind of comment. I loved that comment. I thought it was a... I love Charmaine. Yeah, <laughs> she's been the perfect champion for the book and has had such a um, great, passionate voice for everything that I was looking to achieve and uh, understood my book better than I did uh, almost from the, our first interaction. So that it's been a pleasure to work with her. In, in terms of Sean being empowered by his creativity. The thing about Sean's character is that he's uh, a student who's going into his undergraduate degree at 22. And I know that that's not a big disconnect, but it does make you a slightly more senior student. And he's really waited for his chance to do this. He's had to be cared for by uh, a single mother uh, living in York, Yorkshire, um, but they've grown up. But uh, the, the family is originally from Ireland. And the, he, he's been waiting for this NHS settlement payment that he is owed as the result of uh, maltreatment from the occasion of his birth. Like a lot of uh, instances of cerebral palsy are caused not from anything in the womb, but through difficulties at birth where you're deprived of air or oxygen. So now that this money has come through and he is gaining this, this independence, he, he's trying to seize it with both hands and realise his passions and explore the limits of himself in that kind of enthusiastic teenage way that um, anybody who's discovering complete freedom for the first time wants to. And his infectious enthusiasm of wanting to go to the art studio daily and really push himself as hard as possible is, is there. Um, and Janet is the vehicle through which he is able to achieve that. Um, and at no point in the book does he take her for granted I don't think at least he he can be a bit kind of teenage with her where he's moany or um, disgruntled and doesn't want to be got up in the morning but he's grateful for the opportunities that everybody's affording him because he knows what it's like on the other side but he's also you, you get the sense that he is part of a wider online community he's in contact with another artist out in Canada who's a good friend of his and 
he never feels alone. He's got his own life independent of Janet. And the, the nice thing that I think Janet has to realise relatively early on is that she could be anyone. She is not the, the big deciding factor in his ultimate success. So that that's a really weird thing where, uh, as, as you mentioned earlier, from the kind of power balance between them, at any point in time, she could just quit and step away and he would find a replacement. But she perceives there to be some really intimate connection, fundamental to the success that he's having, that she's trying to take credit for. That's not entirely true when, when you look at the, the evidence of it. So, yeah, I've done a roundabout way of answering again. I'm sorry. <laughs> no, I like it. So just so many nuances to this novel that it's amazing, like you say, that you have created something with so much space to insert yourself into it and that it is light and that there are moments <laughs> that are funny and, you know, and, and there's a very cohesive storyline. And, you know, like, so for a novel that is achieving so much, it's also a really, a good, uh, like a, a, a pleasant read as well. Not, not much a pleasant, but an enjoyable read. Um, so what's it's next? It's been like good nine months since I read it now. I'm going to have to reread it and remind myself of these things. I feel out of my depth. You feel like <laughs> it's a completely different you that wrote it, I imagine. So, so are you writing another, you're writing another novel as we speak? So... I have finished another novel since I wrote this oh, one wow. that was one that I felt like I needed to write and get out of my system that I'm not sure is going to do much other than sit on my hard drive for a while. And now there, there's one that I've been writing for about nine months now that I feel really positive about. It's a story that I'm excited to, to tell. Did I mention it to you? Is yeah. it okay if we don't include this on the podcast? Oh, yeah, but, yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah. Um, well, then, yeah. then let me... Um... We can talk about this afterwards, Alex. <laughs> but another novel is coming and that's exciting. <laughs> I hope so, yeah. The, the thing is that it's probably as unpublishable subject matter-wise as the art of the body was. The, the art of the body um, owes its life thanks to Charmaine and Dialogue Books and my brilliant agent Zoe Ross at United Agents. Um, they've been the most incredible champions for it. Dialogue exists to champion underrepresented voices from uh, LGBT, BAME, working class and disabled communities. I grew up in a single parent family, pretty working class upbringing, and that's how I kind of qualify for the press. But as much as that is the subject matter that I was choosing to, to talk about, that Charmaine felt, as you mentioned, it's, it's a story that hopefully the the general reading public would, would benefit from from hearing more of and seeing more of on television yeah for sure for sure well Alex thank you so much for um I wish you yeah the best of luck with it I can't wait to read it and um and I'm interested in the one on the hard drive too so um but yeah thank you so much for talking to us today and yeah and best of luck thank you so much for your lovely questions and to the riffraff community for having me oh my god pleasure pleasure listen to and enjoy the Refraff podcast please give us a cheeky little review over on itunes or wherever you listen to your podcasts it helps people discover we exist cheers